You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How long do you think you stood out on my porch before I came and opened the door? I think four to six minutes. I knocked in rapid succession, like that, Uh at a loud volume on three separate occasions. And then I called you on the phone. But you didn't try to ring the doorbell. Did you or did you not try to ring the doorbell? Have you looked at your doorbell? Did you answer yes? It's a yes or no question. Did you or did you not? The doorbell that looks like it would electrocute me. That doorbell. But then when I came and answered the door and I said, did you ring the doorbell? You pushed the doorbell button and it did ring. By doorbell button, you mean shattered shards of plastic that used to be a doorbell button. Like I can see the wiring inside your doorbell. First of all, this is just a rental. So it's not technically our doorbell. <laughs> Second of all, it works. Third of all, you've been here. We've been recording the podcast when some jerk has come to the door and rang the doorbell, causing us to do a re-record and, of a segment. And for all I know, that jerk smashed the doorbell with his over-exuberant ringing. But and you, that's how it ended up in its current state, which is a sad state of affairs. But you could also infer that he or she was not killed, and therefore I don't understand why you wouldn't ring the doorbell. Just stand out there in the cold like a damn fool. You know what? I used the doorbell of the 21st century, my cell phone, and I got you to open the door. So you did? Well, you... you called me, which was interesting. That's I right. thought someone had died because <laughs> I couldn't for the life of me think why you would be 10 minutes late, which for you is five minutes early. But then you would call me. So when I answered, because you called me instead of texted me, I assumed you were going to tell me that Sarah or Willa or, or one of your beloved pets was in the hospital. And that you couldn't make it. You know, and when you say I'm 10 minutes late, what you mean is that I was only four minutes late. And then I stood out there knocking on the door trying to get you. It's not like this is a huge house. It's not like you live in the damn Playboy Mansion and you can't hear the somebody knocking on the door. Again, it's a rental. And you can't blame (laughs) me for not coming out there when you're still you're five minutes early, according to Ben Folk's time. I would have come out there a quarter after. And then waited for you to show up because I know how you operate. I know your schedule. Let me tell you this, and we'll we'll end the discussion here. I'm putting this out there for you and for everybody else who can hear the sound of my voice. The next time something like this happens, I'm kicking the motherfucker down. I'm well, coming in strong. You don't get to dictate the terms of when this conversation ends, <laughs> but that's fine. We can end it here with your threat of violence. Uh, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better. NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where they can go to sign up. Which says you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. That's MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. We got three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, remember last week... 
during Just Saying Stuff when I mentioned that UFC 197 uh, was scheduled for March 5th and we still had no idea what, if any, fights were going to be on that card? Well, update. And in round two, at this point, Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw have established a pre-fight relationship where Cruz is the cool but tough college professor and Dillashaw is the popular but dim-witted student who's just now realizing he's not going to be able to coast through this class like all the others. And in round number three, Anthony Pettis returns to the cage for the first time in nearly a year to take on Eddie Alvarez in a fight that figures to be pretty awesome but a hard one to come back from for whoever loses. Do you think he's got a guy for that? Ooh. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from Malte Murring. I just ballparked that one. I feel like you actually might have got that one. Well, there's an umlaut in there. Yeah. So yeah, I know you know your way around an umlaut. He writes, he or she writes, it sure sucks that the UFC is keeping part of the Reebok money from some fighters because of evil patches and other mysterious rule-breaking, but that's not the real problem. Of course they want the fighters to play by the rules, and that wouldn't be a problem if they made decent money instead of the change they are getting now. Problem is always the money, right? Diskutieren bitte. Well, see, that's German at the end, so yes, I, it is. I nailed that. Yeah. Four years of German. There you go. All the way through high school. Yeah. Plus two semesters at the university. I still just barely speak the language. Yeah. You know, my uh, high school and early college German helped me talk to a, a boy in my daughter's preschool who only speaks German. And after the initial introduction, he looked at me like, yeah, what else? And I had to be what like, else you got? that's kind of it, man. I got to go. Did you tell him, ich habe nur Kinderdeutsch? <laughs> you only speak children's German? I got you. I okay. got you. Uh, okay. I, th I disagree that the only problem is that the money's not good enough because I don't think that that's so much the issue with the withholding part of their money for infractions right. of I wouldn't policy. go so far as to say that's the only problem. Well, it makes sense to me that if you're going to have any sort of like outfitting policy like this, you have to have some way to ensure compliance. Right. And the, like the other, uh, the NFL and the NBA do this all the time, frankly, fine people or, uh, or I guess the people can make requests. Maybe they can change their, their uniforms, but they, uh, they deny almost everything. So yeah, this is like, uh, this is not an isolated MMA or UFC incident. This is like kind of a, uh, kind of a standard across the board with sports that have marketing era, uh, you know, outfitting policies, quote unquote. Although, uh, this one to me seems, remarkably heartless. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but I'm glad you brought up the NFL because do you know what the NFL does with the money that it takes from players who violate the out the no. uniform policy? No, I don't donates it all to charity. That makes sense. It does not keep that money. Um, and that's what I think is probably the biggest problem so far with what the USC is doing here is, you know, I talk to them and ask them, what are you doing with that money? They keep it basically. And they say they keep it and then they give it out to other fighters who comply with the policy. But that doesn't mean other people are like, Oh, hey, Donald's already got money taken away. You're all, we're all going to redistribute his money to you guys. You know, you all get the same. The UFC just holds on to his money. And that gives you an incentive to find fault with people, to find them in violation. And you can say, Oh, the UFC wouldn't do that. It'd be petty to just chip away at fighters' money when they already make so little of it. Uh, the point being made here. But you don't even want that appearance if you're the UFC 
you should, if you're going to take that money away from them as like a punitive measure, which COC admitted that that's what it is, it exists solely to get people to do something or to get them not to do something else, then take that money and give it away to somebody else just so nobody can say, hey, the UFC is finding a way to keep my money. Right. And this also seemed like another instance uh, in a long line of instances, I guess you can say, where I could, maybe it's too strong to say that the UFC was making up the rules as it went along because I think everybody knew that they would get fined or that they would get penalized if they were in violation of this outfitting policy. But I don't think anybody knew how much. Right. And in retrospect, uh, if we can take Donald Cerrone's tweet on the subject uh, to heart, it sounded like a lot because what he said was take a number, like pick a number that you think they would fine you and then double it because that's what they ended up fining him. It also seemed like, uh, like you were saying, an incentive to, to – you know, fine people for breaking the rules because it seemed like in the case of Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, maybe he didn't fully know that he was in uh, violation because he wore like a shirt from from a fight team, right? The Evolve fight team, right. like it's underneath it, his weigh-in that's Reebok one, sweatsuit. I, I, I think the confirmed cases so far are Donald Cerrone said he was one. Nate Diaz said he was another one. We heard uh, – through, through the grapevine that Rafael Dos Anjos was the other one. And they all seem like different violations. Like his seemed like he was wearing an Evolve Fight Team t-shirt at weigh-ins like under his Reebok jacket or something that wasn't even visible for that long and that he maybe did not know that that would be considered a violation or that he would get fined. Um, and Nate Diaz was uh, kind of promoting his represent brand. Uh, apparently he was giving out t-shirts at workouts or something and had his, his water bottle. And if you saw him at the press conference, he apparently turned the water bottle so people could see the logo, like turn the water bottle so the logo was facing the camera at one point. Donald Cerrone clearly knew what he was doing. He put that, uh, his own little strip from, uh, previous fight shorts that he does every single time right. on his. And the thing I find really interesting about that one is that you are, punishing the guy for trying to find this tiny little way to personalize his shorts, right. which is the thing that you said you were going to do yourself for everybody's shorts. That was the promise at the beginning, right? Like, hey, Reebok's going to work with all the athletes and it's going to personalize it so everybody has their own individual touch. Don't worry. It won't be all a bunch of cookie-cutter cookie cutter uniform stuff. Everybody's going to have a personalized touch. We come to find out that the opposite is true. And Donald Cerrone takes a small little step to personalize his, and he gets hit with a punishment for it. And with Donald Cerrone, I would bet he's going to do it again. I bet he will do it again when he fights Tim Means, unless they took so much of his money that uh, that they scared it right out of him. Because this is, I mean, this is a thing he's done his entire career. And you know what a sweet move would be is to take up a collection among the fans where people can pay Donald Cerrone to do it again. Because I think that MMA fans would get really into something like that. I, I agree with you. And like we talked about this a little bit off the air uh, over the weekend. At a it, bowling alley is a, what you mean. That's right. In the bar of a bowling alley. <laughs> uh, it brings up an interesting situation whereby, let's say a fighter is sponsored by another big corporation. Like, I'm just spitballing here. Budweiser. Okay. Uh, for example. What if Budweiser comes to Donald Cerrone and says, and says, Donald, like, how much do you think they're going to find you if you wear a Budweiser shirt to the weigh-ins or during your walkout? And he says, well, here's what they find me last time. And Budweiser says, don't worry, we got you, right? Because then you've created a situation where 
Uh, the the basically a, a corporate sponsor is calling the UFC's bluff. A fighter is calling the UFC's bluff, and I know that the UFC says that it reserves the right to pull somebody out of a fight if it's not gonna if he or she is not gonna conform to the outfitting policy. But like if Donald Cerrone is going out there on live on Fox, live and free on Fox, as Dana White would say, uh, and he's gonna fight for the title in the main event, uh, well then you got a yourself a, a staring contest. Yeah, and. I'm sure it would be different depending on the circumstance and the fighter, but yeah, that's one where, especially if he were to do something that only is apparent that day. If he does something at the weigh-ins, then maybe you feel like you have a little bit of time to uh, work with, but if he does something that day where it becomes clear he's going to wear a, a, he's sewn a Budweiser patch onto his shorts and he's going to go out there and you tell him, you know what, no, we're just not going to have a main event title fight on Fox, which already has reason to, to want us to give him something good. We're just going to pull it. Because of our outfitting policy. I don't believe you'd do that if, if you're the UFC. So it does create an interesting situ- situation made more interesting by, to bring it back to Malty Mooring's question here, the low pay makes it so that maybe a big corporation that really, really wants to force its way into the UFC doesn't even have to pay that much. Like if he, if you go to some fighter, it could be a pretty experienced, popular fighter and say, what are you making out of this outfitting policy thing? And he says, 10 grand. And they say, all right, man, we'll give you 30. We'll give you 30 to sneak our patch onto TV. And we're probably getting a deal based on what we used well, to you, pay for some. Yeah, some you're saving similar yourself fighters. at least 20 G's, right? Cause you don't, you, uh, in theory, wouldn't have to pay the $50,000 sponsor tax right. anymore. And the, especially for the guys who were getting those big name sponsors beforehand, they, you know, they were getting pretty good payouts. So they say, we'll give you $30,000. Man, that way, even if they take all your Reebok money, you still doubled your money. I think that might start to sound like a pretty good deal to some people. Just the Reebok train just keeps on rolling. Just keeps getting better and better. Every stop. Uh, next question this week comes from Ryan Kane. He writes, if I said an over-under at three UFC fighters switching to Bellator who are divisionally ranked in the top 15 of their weight classes at the time of switching companies by the end of 2000, by the end of 2016, which would you guys take in the wake of an increase in UFC fighters fighting out their contracts and some discontent with the UFC? See Frankie Edgar kind of situation, comma, Aljamain Sterling's low pay despite his ranking. I personally like the over. What do you guys think? Um... That's I a would, tough one. It is tough. I would Three all, is a really good over-under it is. point to set. It's almost as though maybe Ryan Kane works at a sports book somewhere. <laughs> He's used to setting the Or number. is perhaps just an inveterate low-life gambler. So he's saying uh, three total or three in each weight class? Three total. Three total. Divisionally ranked fighters at the time of them switching. And they have to go to Bellator? That is a, that is a good number. I think I would be tempted to take the over, especially since you you could lose Aljamain Sterling and, and Alistair Overeem just to start the year. Uh but you also have the UFC also has matching rights for most of these contracts. Uh, so I would assume for, for a lot of guys, it could keep them just by matching whatever offer they they get from somebody else. Uh, but I, I'm still going to take the over. I think we're, we're, we're starting to get into a very interesting time in, in the UFC's dominance and in mixed martial arts for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, some of which have to do with the Reebok stuff that we just talked about. And now this new stuff of, uh, it becoming a little bit more widespread that people are going to test their their worth on the free agent uh, market. So I'm going to take the over, I think. Here's what I would want to know. You say fighters switching to Bellator right. uh, who are divisionally ranked. Does it count if they're cut? Because the way the UFC has been cutting some people lately, like uh, you know, even guys who are not on long losing streaks, um, 
does it count if they cut somebody who's maybe, especially in like light heavyweight or something, cut the guy who's ranked 15 and then he goes well, and signs a Bellator. in the light heavyweight division. That's right. Everyone in heavyweight and light, light heavyweight is ranked if you're on the roster pretty much. Uh, Cause if that counts, then yeah, I'll definitely take the over. I think it counts. Sure. All right. It's going to take the over on both of those. Next question is we comes to us from Robert Johnson. He writes, uh, after McGregor's response to Floyd. All right. So go ahead and go. say it. Go ahead and say it. I'll just, maybe I'll just. Conor McGregor's response to Floyd Mayweather is what he means. Yeah, that's right. After Conor McGregor's response to Floyd Mayweather, I've seen numerous members of the MMA media mention that Conor is missing Floyd's point. On Reddit, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I said that Conor is so far removed from a ruling in Scotland in 1603 that it has no real effect on him. And therefore, it really has nothing to do with what Floyd is saying about the world right now. Then I was told that there is no prejudice against black people in Europe. Is anyone going to do an article about this except ESPN? I feel that everyone is ignoring what is actually being said. So that's a question from Robert Johnson, long time, long time listener, Robert Johnson. Uh, but not, not a lot of context given here in the question. Right. But I, I, I'm one of the media members who's saying that Connor is missing Floyd's point. I think I used full names, uh, when I made that argument, but I think a lot of people are, are missing the point because basically what happened here is Floyd Mayweather in an interview, I believe with Fight Hype, dot uh, com was saying that he thinks that you can see proof of racism. He was talking mostly in boxing, and he was yeah. saying, "Look at how you know white boxers who have done less or achieved less are getting promoted better or higher ranked than black boxers." Um, and then he kind of eventually got around. It wasn't even really a central focus of his point. He was saying, "Look in MMA. Look at the difference between Ronda Rousey. You know, she doesn't have that many wins and she's getting things that Layla Ali, for example, never got. Um, and then he brought up Conor McGregor and he, he went out of his way to say how little he knew about Conor McGregor. Just that he heard the guy's cocky and talks a lot of trash. Whereas when Floyd Mayweather does it, he thinks people hate him for it, which I would respond. That's not why people hate you, Floyd right. Mayweather. A lot of, so, um, several people are missing the point here. It sounds yeah. like so far, but I think the, this is one where I had to admit, even that he, he did not express it as well as maybe he could have. Floyd Mayweather does have a point about how we have long kind of acknowledged, especially in boxing, the way that race affects the way uh, different fighters are promoted or received. I mean, for instance, the existence alone of the movie The Great White Hype is kind of all about this phenomenon. Right. And I don't recall when that movie came out, people being like, it's referring to a completely fictional phenomenon. We recognize that. And I think we recognize it with Ronda Rousey, don't we, that... Everybody talks about, hey, would she have forced open the UFC doors for female fighters if she had not been like a Diaz brother in a beautiful fucking body, to quote Dana White. I know you love that quote. I can see it for your face right now. And everybody seems comfortable with admitting, no, that her being an attractive blonde woman had a lot to do with it. And some reason when you mention that, hey, maybe her race might have also had a lot to do with it, people seem to get a little, a little touchy about that. And Conor McGregor's response was basically, hey, Irish people have been oppressed in a bunch of different ways over the years, too. Um, don't ever say that I'm succeeding because of my race or something. The difference is it's not a contest to see who has been oppressed more historically. And it's not a, it's not saying like it's not accusing you of saying like, hey, this guy leveraged his race to get ahead. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that it's about. As in race in general, it's a 
it's a thing that society forces on you. It's not necessarily a thing that you like opt into and are, are trying to take advantage of. And I think you can't really make the argument that I think I don't think you can say Conor McGregor is succeeding in spite of being Irish or in sight in spite of being a white dude. I think you, you, you have to admit that one of the things that the UFC has even said before is that it has an advantage over boxing and that it in playing to a mostly white fan base has a lot of successful white fighters. I think the USC has even admitted that in the past. I don't. I think people are just kind of missing what the actual point of the the argument was. Yeah, it puts you in a weird position to agree with Floyd Mayweather. It does, but I think that you're right, and I think that although, as you said, uh, his his interview with Fight Hype was almost completely about boxing and talking about a bunch of things that, frankly, I don't have. Uh, the background in enough to to say whether he's right or wrong because he's talking about Andre Ward and he's he's talking about uh, Triple G, who's talking about a Al guy, Heyman, yeah, a guy whose name I don't know and is clearly a guy whose name Floyd Mayweather doesn't know since he didn't never used it. Uh, but he's, I mean, yeah, he's clearly right, especially in the the within the confines of mixed martial arts and the UFC. Like you mentioned, that Conor McGregor's not succeeding in spite of his Irishness. Like I would say he's in. He's succeeding in part because of his Irishness. Like Conor McGregor, without the the brogue, and without you know, without the 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 gift of gab that he possesses, would not be would not be anywhere near as big as as he as he is now. And so I think he's even though he doesn't you know make a point to do it, he's obviously trading on his ethnicity and 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 by extension trading on his race. And I think with Ronda Rousey. Uh, you would be completely foolhardy to not think that the fact that she was a pretty blonde white lady had everything to do with why she became uh, the UFC's biggest star. And and frankly, the, the female fighter that changed the mind of the UFC ownership about whether or not they were even going to have female fighters in the UFC. Uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of Ronda Rousey's popularity, I think, comes down to the UFC realizing what an easy sell she was to mainstream media. Like ESPN always wanted to have Ronda Rousey on SportsCenter, you know, uh, GQ and Esquire. And, and now we find out Sports Illustrated wants to have Ronda Rousey in the in the swimsuit issue. And SNL that, wants her to host. Yeah, she's going to host SNL. And, and you know, I, I think we would be lying if we said that a lot of that wasn't based on her pretty blonde whiteness. And it prob those opportunities probably would not have been there for her if, if she didn't embody that, what you know a lot of people viewed as a sex symbol. Can you imagine, imagine for a second that Ronda Rousey has done all the same things in the cage and out of the cage, had the, the same personal story, the same attitude, same kind of swaggering uh, presence, and she were a black woman in America. Can you imagine the the response from a lot of fans? I don't think it would be quite so positive, is what I'm saying. It would have been very different, I think. Yes. All right, next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, So Crow Cop doesn't fail a drug test that he was obviously pretty sure he would. This concerns me because I feel it would embolden those with the resources and flexible morals necessary to attain HGH slash designer PEDs. What are your thoughts on the ripple effects of this situation? Please discuss. So yeah, we just we found out this week, right, that at least according to a report that Mirko Crow Cop, who kind of outed himself for using HGH to try to extend his martial times, uh, 
Actually, you love, didn't. You love Marshall it's one Times. Of my, it's one of my favorite phrases at this point. <laughs> uh, didn't fail his any of his uh, USADA UFC enhanced drug testing tests, which uh, raises some from some red flags. I would think since you have a, it's like the it's the perfect storm of what you don't want to happen if you run a drug testing company. Like you don't yeah. want someone to out themselves as a PEDs user after they have passed your tests. Yeah. You know, and I think that the people who have the resources and the flexible morals, as Andrew Millington says, probably already knew that HGH was the one that you were probably most likely to get away with. I mean, this might just confirm it for them. I don't know if it's going to... First of all, I think you're talking about a relatively small population in the UFC that fits that mold, The having the resources... Uh, Mainly the resources. Yeah, the flexible morals uh, <laughs> part is probably a little bit more widespread. Um, I think, though, that everybody knows that HGH is pretty tough to catch somebody on. I think maybe this just uh, makes them feel a little more confident uh, about that. Because I remember talking when the UFC was saying that they had caught Kung Lee, right? And this is one of the things that seems like it helped to prompt the UFC getting involved in the USADA to begin with. Did their own testing in Macau. Uh Said they caught Kung Lee on HGH, and then when all the information about exactly what kind of testing and everything they did came out, there were serious questions about whether they could have really caught him that way. And I remember talking to Don Catlin from the UCLA laboratory about it, and he was talking about how difficult it is to catch somebody on HGH. And I asked him, I had read something that said, like, you need to have, you need to test somebody within 24 hours of taking HGH in order to have a chance at catching them. And he said, he would put that number at closer to 12 hours that you have to test them within 12 hours of them taking it, which means you either have to know when they take it or you just got to get lucky. Um, so I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why people have in the past preferred HGH. So I don't know. I don't know if it will really necessarily change anybody out there who has the ability to do HGH, but was scared of getting caught. Maybe there's a few people who fit that mold and, uh, they'll see this and think, all right, I can extend my martial times. Uh, I don't know, though. I think most mostly those people probably already knew this. Yeah, no, the biggest, I, I agree. I think the biggest effect of this is that it undermines a lot of the bluster that we heard from the UFC, especially at the, you know, the introductory press conference where they announced the specifics of this. Uh, and they certainly want to now act as though they have this comp- comprehensive drug testing program that's going to ensure that everything is on the level. Uh, and I'd love to believe that that's true, but at this point... I think I said it before on the show, you, like the if you are running this in-house drug testing program, you don't want to catch everybody on the roster because that would be a disaster. But you also don't want to catch nobody because that right. makes it seem like your tests aren't aren't very good. And this is just another instance of of making it seem like people can still do stuff and get away with it. And then you look at the total number of drug tests done in 2015. What was it? Over 300, right? Not, this is around 350. So not the, the 500 or whatever that they said it was going to be, but still a lot of drug tests considering the thing was only uh, in operation from July on or whatever. So you did. And they didn't jump right into testing in July either. Right. They, they took a while to get that right. You did up. 350 tests. And so far, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one guy has gotten caught. You mean yeah. actually gotten caught by the test? Yeah, right. Gleason T-Bow. Yeah, yeah, old man Gleason T-Bow. Old, old man Gleason, yeah. He got caught. Nobody else. That's just one guy out of 350 tests. Although, well, I think we learned this week that with 400 and, or 250 of them were of Sage Northcutt, right? <laughs> well, 
The This one, though, the Crow Cup one, I don't know who you can really lay the blame on there because I think the problem is not that you're not doing good enough tests or that you're not spending the money to go out there and do enough tests. I think this one is more a consequence of the doping landscape in general. It's sure. tough. It's sure. tough to catch somebody. On yeah, no, I, I understand that. I'm not trying to... Uh to undermine that point at all. I'm just saying like from a strictly cut and dried fans perspective, if you're doing 350 tests and catching one guy, I'm thinking either nobody's doing drugs or uh, we're not catching very many people. I can tell you which one it definitely is not. Um, all right. We got, oh, we got a couple minutes here. We got, we'll squeeze this one more in from Mike Mayo Mayo who writes, I recently saw an interview of all Jermaine funk master Sterling explaining his UFC salary in detail because his last contract that the UFC offered was quote-unquote laughable, according to Al. Before taking, before talking about his contract, Al theorizes that the UFC somewhat buried him in the prelims in his last fight to hurt his marketability, which means less bargaining power when renegotiating his contract. He then details his most recent UFC contract, offering him 20 and 20 base pay with uh, $3,000 increases for each fight and a quote-unquote bigger jump after a title fight. Uh, but does not go into detail there, parenthetically, uh, which did not look too promising to Al. He also mentions that every discretionary bonus that he has received in the UFC has been no more than $6,000, which I found interesting considering that the go-to argument for a lot of Zufa supporters are the quote-unquote generous discretionary bonuses that fighters receive. This is, of course, before he was, before he has to pay taxes, gym fees, coaches, managers, etc. All this while being undefeated and ranked number five at bantamweight on the UFC's rankings. If this is all true, I don't understand why the UFC is lowballing its prospects like this, and I can see why Al is not in a hurry to re-sign with the UFC. Please discuss. Um, are we calling Al Jermaine Sterling Al now? That's, I think we are. I think we okay. just started that. I well, just, but just saw it right little, here. In no, this... I think I saw it a little bit on social media because your colleague uh, Mike Chapetta had yeah. that, that thing on there, and uh, I, I, it was a really interesting article for a lot of reasons. And when I saw people discussing it, somehow we started calling him Al, which uh, that feels like we used to talk about how people's, especially international fighters' names, would change if they came and, and competed in Montana. This is an example of that. Al Jermaine Sterling becomes Al. Al Sterling. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? This is the situation where I support Al Jermaine Sterling. I understand his uh, grievances. I understand why he would want to get paid more, especially when you've got a company where the one of the executives is talking about how they made $600 million last year. Uh, and as the number five ranked fighter in your weight class, getting paid 20 and 20, is not that much, especially as I believe he told Mike Giappetta when you find out that Sage Northcutt is making 40 and 40, and that became kind of the benchmark, I guess, for Al Sterling uh, to, uh, to you know, in his negotiations, he wants to make at least that much money. Uh, but I also kind of see the other side, too, I have to say. Um, and, and God knows I'm as much of a pure sport guy as anyone in the world, but, like, if I put myself in the UFC's shoes... Uh, again, I I do sort of understand why I wouldn't want to pay a bantamweight fighter that at this point doesn't have that big of a uh, profile in my sport. Like I wouldn't want to break the bank to pay that guy, which is sort of my the, the devil's advocate thing. I would say, even though me personally, I come down on the side of Aljamain Sterling getting that money. Well, but I think one of the points that he made, and I, I agree that one of the most interesting parts of that was him saying that he his mindset really solidified when he saw what Sage Northcutt was getting paid. And we've talked about this before, uh, that the idea of Sage Northcutt as the most photographed barn in America, basically this guy, you brought him in, 
you hyped him real big from the very beginning and you told everybody this guy is a star and then you just keep repeating it until he kind of becomes a star. And they did kind of the opposite with Aljamain Sterling. There's a lot there that you could promote and they haven't done it. Right. And at least the last one seemed intentional because that was one where I don't know if you remember, but the kind of series of events was Aljamain Sterling was on Twitter or on Instagram, maybe on some social media platform saying, man, I can't get a fight. I might have to, I'm undefeated in this thing. I'm shooting up the ranks and I might have to retire from this sport because the UFC won't give me a fight. I can't fight often enough to pay my bills since I'm making so little per fight. And then after that, uh, the UFC called him and said, basically, you want to fight? Here's your fight. And it was this buried on the prelims of a fight pass show uh, against Johnny Eduardo. Like, it seemed like the UFC is going out of its way not to promote a guy who is really, really promotable. Um, so, it's on one hand, if you can say to the guy, hey, if you were the person people came to see, then you'd get paid more. But he can't do that all by himself. Like, right. he needs the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it really makes you wonder. Like, because I think your point about Sage Northcutt is, is a good one. That, like, what if the UFC had gone all in on a guy like Aljamain Sterling to begin with. Like, did, like if they created Sage Northcutt so quickly, could they have done the same thing for a guy like Aljamain Sterling? Um, and, and I don't know the answer to that question. I think one of the things, unfortunately, that, that is kind of hinders him is that he's a 135 pound fighter, right? It's the same thing that hindered 145 pound fighters before Conor McGregor came. Yeah, along. But see, that's the thing that I think kind of gives the lie to that. We've seen this several times where we say, okay, fighters, Below this weight, they just can't draw any. And we would wonder, hey, how come it's not that way in boxing? How come smaller fighters can draw in boxing? And then somebody comes along that proves it wrong, and you realize, oh, no, wait, you just needed the right fighter. Um, right. So I don't – and I'm not saying that – I mean, he may or may not be that fighter, but it seems like the UFC did not really try to find out too hard. And it's weird, the, the same thing with Sage Northcutt, where his money, especially when you're fighting in Nevada and the payouts become public – that becomes part of how we know what your intentions are, and it also becomes part of the this narrative around who's a star and who's not a star. You know, you say that, hey, this guy's a star. Look at the fan response. Look at look at you know how much he's getting paid, and you're deciding a lot of that kind of stuff yourself as the promoter. So I think he has a pretty good point that you the promoter plays plays a role in building these stars, but then also will turn around and tell a guy who wants more money, hey make yourself a star and then we'll pay you more money. Right. I I agree with that. And and I feel like the the way that we are told to value talent and and quote unquote star power in this sport, especially the way the UFC does, you know, makes up its fight cards, I don't think that totally I don't think you can totally get away with that being the only way you value people in this sport, even though that's that's the way everyone does it. Like because basically the the argument against this is to look at Aljamain Sterling and say he doesn't move the needle, so they shouldn't pay him shit. But the truth is, like, if you're the UFC and you want to have 13 fights on every fight card, you need Aljamain Sterling. Right. You need lots of guys because even if Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey and John Jones uh, and Robbie Lawler are the people that, that fans pay money to watch on pay-per-view, ain't nobody buying UFC pay-per-views and expecting to just get one fight, right? They want six fights, four fights on the main card. A lot of people are watching prelims. So, like, I think that the whole package uh, is important, and I think that all of the people that bring their respective talents to that package have some kind of value. It's just going to be interesting to see where the market values Aljamain Sterling at this point because, uh, you know, I was just talking about 135-pound fighters and how there aren't a lot of them that 
that draw particularly well, we don't think, with with uh, casual fans or, or with, you know, anyone but the most hardcore fans. And I feel like you bring up a good point to say part of that is because the UFC has not promoted them to the extent that they, they probably could have. But if you're Bellator or 1FC maybe or, or World Series of Fighting, like do you look at a top 135-pound fighter and think, yes, let's – whatever discretionary money we've got floating around right now, let's throw it at Aljamain Sterling because we feel like he could be a big star at this weight when – up to this point, not very many people have been able to do that at bantamweight. So that's one of the things that I think will be interesting to see about whether Aljamain Sterling does, in fact, get that money. True. And I think, though, the he has already done himself a great service and shown his ability to create a little buzz around himself, the fact that he has made this a talking point. Right. He did not go quietly. He did not just shut up and take whatever he was offered or just disappear. He has made himself into somebody that I think a lot of guys uh, maybe not had not even seen fight uh, or at least to where they remembered it, and now they know who Aljamain Sterling is because he is getting out there and talking about this and making it an issue. Good for him. No, I agree, and he's done a good job. I, I would also say, like, do you think that's a positive if you were a promoter? Like, if you are the UFC, well, we know what the UFC wants, right? We don't even have to bring that up as a question. The UFC wants you to go quietly and take whatever money they offer you and, and fight whoever they tell you to, whenever they tell you, wherever they tell you. And I think that we've seen through experience, and and I think we saw it happen with Aljamain Sterling, that if you are not a person who does that, they're going to give you the toughest fight that they can give you, and they're going to give it to you on the fightpass.com. Right. But if you're Scott Coker, and you're running Bellator, and here comes this guy, 135-pound fighter, uh, good fighter, promotable guy. But also, you can tell from experience that he's not going to hesitate to air your dirty laundry whenever he gets the chance. Like, does that turn you off at all? Or do you see that? Do you see his ability to get his own name out there as a positive? Because as a fan, I see it as a positive. As a promoter, I can understand how you might think twice. First of all, Bellator signed Rampage Jackson. Okay. okay. End of the discussion. Well, right that, that was the pre Scott <laughs> Coker Bellator, by the way. Uh, and it seemed like they learned some painful lessons from what they agreed to, to, or the, what they promised him in that contract. But I would also say that in general, Bellator is not in a position to draw that fine uh, a distinction to say like, we want really good guys, but only if they're company guys. I think that they need to take really good guys who have some buzz around them when they can. I'd also think that the UFC should learn uh, maybe a little lesson from pro wrestling, which is that having a guy where it seems like he is at odds with management um, is a thing we are interested in yeah, as yeah. combat sports fans. So that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. I mean, it might be annoying for you, but we've seen that this happen over and over again with fighters who have fought and been really profitable in the UFC. So that if, even if they might be a pain in your ass to deal with, the, if the way that they are a pain in your ass gets attention, then they're kind of doing what you want them to do, at least in that sense. And you'd better off rolling with it, I think. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll put you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning. It catches you up on news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. You'll like it. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, there's been some hijinks with the scheduling and fight card for UFC 197 at the beginning of March. We first thought it was going to be in Rio de Janeiro at the HBSC, HSBC, QTR, why, what, the arena there, I can't do it. Do you do a PR for them? Yes. You just nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. What is that, a bank? HSBC Center? HSBC Arena? Yeah. Uh, we thought it was going to be there. And then Anderson Silva, of all people, sort of broke the news to us that uh, that event wasn't going to go on as scheduled. I believe he did that during the conference call where it was where he was uh, promoting his upcoming fight with Michael Bisping. He said it was because of the ongoing economic crisis in Brazil. I'm not sure that the UFC has ever either confirmed or denied that. Uh, but there were some, you know, there were there were some ups and downs here. Let's just say in getting this thing together. One of which involved uh, Dana White telling Ariel Hawani he was full of shit on Twitter, right? Telling him he was full of shit and was guilty of clickbaiting, which sounds like somebody handing down an official verdict. Uh, and then it turned out that Ariel Hawani was totally right. Yeah, and also, maybe I don't think that's what clickbaiting is. Nope. Uh, anyway, our guy, Bleacher Reports, Jeremy Botter, broke the news this past week that uh, the UFC is taking this event that at first had nothing scheduled and is now turning it into a goddamn blockbuster with uh, Conor McGregor moving up to lightweight to fight Rafael Dos Anjos for the 155-pound title. Maybe. And, yeah, maybe. 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 We'll see. Uh, and now, uh, Holly Holm defending her women's bantamweight championship against Misha Tate. So uh, we have yet to have the official announcement from the UFC exactly that that's what is going to happen. And in fact, today there was some more intrigue about some holdups. And uh, so we uh, are still waiting for the official announcement. But that's what we think is going to happen. Um, and that is a pretty significant turn of events. Yes, it is. So uh, we're going to have to uh, get that all finalized. But at this moment, we believe Conor McGregor is going to wind up on this card fighting somebody. Uh, and I guess the two people who would be in the running are Rafael Dos Anjos and Frankie Edgar. And then uh, Holly Holm fighting Misha Tate. So where do you want to start with this? Let's start with the Conor McGregor thing, because okay. I think it's interesting how first you hear a rumor that the holdup is Conor McGregor demanding more money. And I think that that one kind of took root because it sounds like something that Conor McGregor might do at this point based on the trajectory he's been on when dealing with the UFC. And then we hear, wait a minute, no, 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 he's not the one holding it up. Uh, it might be Dos Anjos holding it up. It might be settling on an opponent, his coach going on the, the MMA Fortnite, I believe, and saying that he's definitely going to be on that card. We just don't know who he's going to fight yet. Um it's an awful lot of intrigue for a fight that is, when you look at the calendar, supposed to be really not that far away. Well, yeah. Um, I suppose it's better than nothing, which is what we had a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> okay. uh, but now we have the, these rumors swirling. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think unless something crazy happens with an injury, all signs point to Conor McGregor against Rafael Dos Anjos and Holly Holm against Misha Tate. Um, interesting that the odds went online for this already, even though we haven't uh, gotten a finalized announcement of the card, and that Rafael Dos Anjos is a slight favorite, and that Holly Holm is a little bit more than a 3-1 to one favorite over Misha Tate, um, both of which I think are interesting. I do agree that Rafael Dos Anjos shapes up as a tough fight for Conor McGregor, and as we talked about on this show, um, a lower-profile fight for Conor McGregor, I think, than uh, Frankie Edgar. But uh, Misha Tate is obviously very tough, 
And I think we're, you know, even though Holly Holm had a great fight against Ronda Rousey, it feels like um, maybe she's still riding a little bit high on that. She's probably the favorite to beat Misha Tate, but I would hesitate to say she's a three to one favorite in my eyes. Really? I don't, I don't, I mean, how does Misha Tate win that fight, do you think? Just by being Misha Tate? Doing the Misha Tate thing where she just finds a way to win? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're dealing with a completely different skill set than what Ronda Rousey had, obviously, coming in uh, to to her fight with Holly Holm. And maybe it's a question of which version of Holly Holm shows up because, you know, in Holm's two previous UFC fights, she had been a little bit underwhelming. And then but we, she was holding back, Jad. And see, I guess that we, you know, it comes down to whether or not we believe that and whether or not the world beater who showed up and beat Ronda Rousey is going to show up to, to fight Misha Tate and whether or not, you know, the, the skills that she showed in that fight translate totally to a fight against Misha Tate. And Misha Tate's going to bring a different skill set, a different mindset, a different game plan, arguably better preparation than one, what Ronda Rousey brought to that fight. I just think it's a different fight. And I would, while I, you know, if you were, if you were going to bet straight odds, I would say Holly Holm is the way to go. Um, it's just a, a different matchup of styles and a different matchup of, of athletes, and I would say three to one surprises me a little bit in its uh, in its lopsidedness. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. I mean, it is a different fight, but I think it's also similar in the sense that if Misha Tate's going to win that fight, she has to get it to the ground. And I think one of the things that Holly Holm showed in that fight against Ronda Rousey was a great ability just not even to get sucked into that game, especially when what we've seen of. Misha Tate's wrestling, uh, a lot of it lately has been get, pinning people up against the fence and, and starting her, her takedowns from there. And Holly Holm was clearly very aware of that in her fight with Ronda Rousey and never really allowed herself to get put in that situation. I think that Misha Tate's also probably going to have some problems as probably the entire women's bantamweight division will with Holly Holm striking. Um, I, I mean, it seems to me like, the the interesting thing about this fight was how first the UFC was saying Holly Holm's next fight is going to be July when she fights Ronda Rousey. Uh, they're going to go straight to that rematch. Holly Holm didn't want to do that. The UFC seemed to push back on it a little bit, and now she gets her wish. And I think I wonder how much of that has to do with Holly Holm and her management, who has showed in the past the ability to kind of plant their feet in the sand and not be moved when they have their mind made up on something. And how much of it is looking at what's really going on with Ronda Rousey these days. I mean, she's hosting SNL. She's supposed to be filming two movies in 2016. There's just the first half of 2016 and going, maybe we really don't want to frantically rush this thing. Yeah, this would have been a cool one to be a fly on the wall for these negotiations because I think you could argue that both of the fighters in the main event and co-main event got their way when perhaps management you know, didn't necessarily want it to go that way. Because a few like, weeks ago, Dana White was telling me she should take to retire. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, because then, the you know, in McGregor's case, as long as McGregor Dos Anjos comes to pass, unless they, you know, came out of the blue and stripped him of the featherweight title, this would be sort of a landmark event to allow a champion to go up a weight and fight uh, the, the, the lightweight champion. Uh, and try to become a guy who holds titles in two different weight classes at, at the same time. In the past, they've always been very adamant that they would not allow that to happen. And, and you know, if McGregor did beat Dos Anjos, it would be very interesting to see how they handled that and if they let him have both belts. Um, but maybe he is that kind of, you know, landmark figure that is going to 
be able to do things that nobody else has done just because of the dollar dollar amounts that will be attached to to his name that everyone's going to make a lot of money no matter where he fights. Now for Holly Holm, it's obviously kind of a risk, right, for her, for her to go out and fight Misha Tate and and put the Ronda Rousey rematch on the back burner. But when you really start to think about it, I don't know how big of a risk it is, right? Because if she's getting a cut of this pay-per-view, money-wise, having McGregor on there makes it as much of a sure thing as you can get right. in this sport. And even if she loses to Misha Tate, what's the worst-case scenario there if you're Holly Holm? You lose to Misha Tate. What happens to Misha Tate? She probably goes and loses to Ronda Rousey, right? Which is then a matchup we've seen before. You're right back on the carousel. Yeah, it's not like it's not like we're suddenly going to turn our noses up at another Ronda Rousey Holly Holm fight if she loses to Misha Tate. Right. So it, it is a risk, but I'm not sure it's that big of a risk. It's a risk in the sense that anytime you lock yourself in a cage with another human being who's being paid to hurt you, there's some element of risk involved. But you're right. I don't see a, a huge problem with this for her, especially because if you're – we've talked about this before, that mindset that champions kind of trying to pick an opponent – have and I'm sure Holly Holm definitely has it here that if you're going to stick around and be champion of this division for very long, you're going to have to fight Misha Tate eventually. You're going to get there. If you don't think you can beat her, then you probably have bigger problems on your hand. I'm sure she thinks that she can beat Misha Tate. Uh, and I think there's something to be said for her approach of, hey, I want to stay active. I don't want to sit around until July waiting for UFC 200 just to fight Ronda Rousey again. I think especially if you're that's just something you hear fighters talk about all the time is you need to get to that that championship spot so that's when you really start earning the money and you want to get some fights in while you're a champion you don't want to spend valuable time spending seven or eight months sitting around waiting for an opportunity to fight as champion right especially if you're holly holm who's 34 years old and had an entire career as a, a professional boxer before she even came to mixed martial arts so, yeah, I certainly understand the impetus on her part to stay active and make as much money as she can. And if you have this opportunity to jump on the Conor McGregor card, like I said, that's that's pretty much a sure thing. Red right, panty night? Right, is that what you're there. saying? Yes, that's that's red panty night. Rant, red, see, red panty night for all of us, <laughs> Ben. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Chad? Have you seen that Bruce Buffer is auctioning off the cards that he used to read off the information when announcing the Conor McGregor-Jose Aldo fight? Yeah. But the Buff has auctioned that stuff off before. Yes, he has. And my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is not necessarily just about him doing that. Um, and by the way, it, it is at least partially funding charity. It is There's a, a sentence in here on the eBay page that says that Partial proceeds go to the Wounded Warriors Project, which I always wonder about charity auctions where partial pro- – because partial could mean a lot of different it things. Could, a lot of different uh, – a lot of gray area. But I don't partial. know if you've actually read the Wikipedia page where this is offered, offered and I would love to know who wrote it because they they have that interesting writing style of just capitalizing strange words within sentences and you can't tell what the rhyme or reason is. <laughs> but let me just read a little bit to you because I know you will enjoy this. It starts eighth time ever, which is in quotes for some reason, offered for bidding or released by Bruce Buffer, the voice of the octagon VOTO. 
Now is your chance to invest in and own one of the rarest of Conor McGregor UFC memorabilia items that will only gain value in the future <laughs> as his historic career continues in the world of sports and entertainment. Now, for the eighth time ever offered for auction, Bruce Buffer, the 20-year veteran octagon announcer for UFC events and many other MMA and boxing events, along with various sports and entertainment events around the world, is allowing one of his valuable octagon-used original fight card sets, again in quotes, there's some, uh, to be released from his vast collection of, again in quotes, octagon-used UFC memorabilia to be auctioned off along with a package of other MMA items personalized and signed by Mr. Buffer with partial proceeds to go to the Wounded Warriors Project. Wow. Goes on to clarify that each card has a small hole, quote, purposely torn by Mr. Buffer in which he inserts his finger to hold on to the card firm while moving and announcing in the octagon. Whoa. My are you fucking kidding me is not to Bruce Buffer or even to the person who wrote this with such an interesting style, but to whoever buys it. <laughs> because right now, I believe the bid is $3,300. Okay, that's a lot of money for that card. And are you fucking kidding me? You think you got $3,000 and change you want to spend on this? If so, I have some priceless MMA memorabilia I would like to sell you. Might even include shards from Chad Dunnis' broken-ass doorbell. You fucking kidding me? CME used shards <laughs> from my broken-ass doorbell. Well, Ben, uh, our guy Brett Okamoto from ESPN caught up with the head honchos of the Ryzen Fighting Federation this past week. Uh, for a wide-ranging interview that talked about the future of Fedor Emelianenko and the future of the promotion at large. I'm going to call your attention to one quote, though, from uh, Nobuyuki Sakakabara, the former Pride boss who is now running Ryzen, uh, where he's talking about MMA legend Sakuraba. Okay. And he says, As far as him fighting again, we have to discuss. We've talked about a class of 40-year-olds and over. It, meaning his career, is not over for Sakuraba, in my mind. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? <laughs> what do we have to see before we can say in anyone's mind that Sakuraba's career is over? Are you fucking kidding me? Just he has to die, and then we can say, yeah, that's it, his career is over. When he can no longer breathe on his own, then we'll consider it. Then his martial times will be at an end? We'll discuss it. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, UFC bantamweight champion TJ Dillashaw and former UFC bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz have been going at each other. I'm sure you saw their little sit down with John Annick sitting in between them. And we heard afterwards Annick saying that the reason the video was not that long was because that was the only portion they could use where they weren't just swearing at each other a whole bunch or mainly, I think, TJ Dillashaw swearing at Dominic Cruz a whole bunch. Uh, and then we see... What I'm going to tell you right now is my favorite quote to come out of this so far. As reported by MMAfighting.com, Dominic Cruz saying, quote, TJ has mentioned that he's hungrier than me, but that can't even be gauged. So that's an ignorant thing to say. Yes, I'm already loving it. 
it feels good to have Dominic Cruz back. Yes, it, it does. I mean, we haven't seen him that much. This gives you at least some idea of how long Dominic Cruz has been away. He had the one fight against Takeya Mizuzaki in September 2014 at UFC 178, where he won in a minute and one second. Prior to that, his previous, his most recent previous opponent was Demetrius Johnson, mm-hmm. the current UFC flyweight champion. And that was all the way back on October 1st of 2011. So basically, Dominic Cruz only has one fight in the entire current landscape of the UFC. The last time he fought before that, there wasn't even a damn flyweight division. It's like unfreezing uh, an Iceman, like one of those cavemen caught in a block of ice and then just reintroducing him to the modern world. It's the MMA equivalent of that. So you're saying he's Encino Man? Basically. He's basically Encino Man. Nice. And like I said, I feel like it feels good to have him back, and I feel like that sit-down that he did with TJ Dillashaw and John Anik was the moment that we all realized how good it felt to have him back, a guy who never lost his title but had to be stripped just because his own damn body is his worst enemy. Um, and clearly, in the time that he has spent away, when he's become one of the UFC's kind of go-to fighters to use as an analyst on Fox Sports 1, he's learned the the, uh, the talking game even really better has. than before. He's got a lot of TV experience now. And that really showed in that TJ, in that sit down interview with Dillashaw, where basically he reduced TJ Dillashaw to just being like, I don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> and Dominic Cruz was like, We're having an interview. What did you think was going to happen? Like, we are here to talk. So that's why I made the uh, professor and student joke at the beginning of the show, because that's kind of what it's been like. And yeah. you wonder, like, if that will extend to the cage when these two guys fight on January 17th, or whether TJ Dillashaw will sort of be able to put it out of his mind and go out there and, and just kind of do his game against Dominic Cruz. The thing for me that I I can't tell you how it's going to play is the effect of this layoff. I know TJ, or, or Dominic Cruz will say that it's not going to affect anything, that he doesn't believe in ring rust and he doesn't think it matters as long as you train hard and train the way you're supposed to uh, to prepare to come back from it. And we saw in that fight with uh, Mizugaki that you know he sure looked like that was the case because he had been gone an awful long time. He came in there... And uh, somebody, I believe on the MMA Reddit recently, uh, posted the video and were just like, uh, you know, watch all 61 seconds of this fight. And the temptation is to watch what Dominic Cruz is doing. But just watch Mizugaki trying and failing to land even a punch. Like he's just swinging it air and he can't find Dominic Cruz anywhere. And you're like, okay, if that's what he looked like after, you know, almost three years off, then maybe... Maybe he's on to something. Maybe he does know how to prepare to kind of cancel out the ring rust. Then again, you're going to be fighting TJ Dillashaw and, and not Mizugaki when you get in there. That's true. I feel like there are a lot of unknowns for both guys coming into this fight because, like you said, the layoff with Dominic Cruz. And you feel like if he shows up as a lesser version of himself, that TJ Dillashaw will be able to handle that. If he shows up you know, right out of the gate as the as the guy that we all knew as the UFC bantamweight champion back in his day uh, and just ready to go, I think he could give TJ Dillashaw some trouble stylistically. And over on Dillashaw's side, you know, he's had a lot of personal turmoil uh, since since his last fight with Hennen Barrow in July of last year. He's uh, basically had a falling out with Uriah Faber. Those guys are pretty much constantly at each other's throats in the in the press now. He's moved uh, his fight teams, trains with a different team now. Uh, he did go there, it seemed like, to be closer to uh, Bang Ludwig, his primary striking coach. 
but just a lot of also to get paid and also to get paid. Uh, but a lot of changes for TJ Dillashaw also. You know, Dillashaw is one of those guys that we extend a lot of belief in and political capital to for being the UFC bantamweight champion when we really haven't seen a ton from him in terms of like really, really high level experience. You know, he beat Henan Barrow, who obviously was the standard bearer at the bantamweight division in, in Cruz's absence, beat yeah. him twice. But aside from that, you know, he had the one real late fill-in fight against Joe Soto at UFC 177, and prior to that, his win over Mike Easton in, in January of 2014. Like, those four fights are are essentially Dillashaw's resume as an elite bantamweight. So we haven't seen him do a whole heck of a lot against a whole lot of different styles and a whole lot of other elite 135-pounders. And if Dominic Cruz comes out and is still the same guy he used to be, he's about as elite as it gets. Yeah, I think one of the big differences that people really like to compare T.J. Dillashaw, like that style that he kind of adopted. Now, uh, Dominic Cruz likes to compare T.J. Dillashaw to Dominic Cruz. <laughs> yeah, unfavorably. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, and so it's it's interesting to see you know how that's going to play out exactly what style he'll go in there with against Dominic Cruz, who has really mastered that style. But I think the thing, the difference that you see is when you look at how like kind of method of victory. Like TJ Dillashaw can hurt you in there with, he can make that style work. He, he uses a lot of movement, but he still can hit with a lot of power and he's finished a, a fair number of guys in the UFC. And you look at Dominic Cruz. I mean, he, he did knock out Mizugaki and that was one of those where basically, uh, he was tagging him pretty good on the feet, but not with anything that seemed like it was going to knock him out. And then when they got on the ground, uh, managed to trap an arm and then just unload on him with right hand. So you go back before that and you see a bunch of decisions, you know, the uh, TKO win over Brian Bowles when he had broken hands, I believe it was, and they they stopped it. Uh, You don't see a whole lot of finishing power from Dominic Cruz. And it makes you wonder, does he have to go in there and beat TJ Dillashaw by decision? Um, Whereas TJ Dillashaw looks like he can hurt you. He, he can, he can stop that fight, Um, which Seems like one more notch in his favor. Yeah, it does. But I mean, uh, Dillashaw showed, or I mean, not Dillashaw, Cruz showed he's certainly uh, capable of of stopping people quickly in his last fight against Mizugaki. Previous to that, he he stopped Brian Bowles. That was way back in 2010. But you're right, he stacked up several That's divisions. That's a doctor stoppage. Come on. Still yeah, so counts. one where Brian Bowles still like, counts. smashed both his hands, right? Still counts. Okay. But pre, you know, in between those broken he, hands means he's punching you in the head until he counts, hurt himself. Still counts. <laughs> okay. You're right, though. He stacked up a lot of divisions, decisions <laughs> in between those two. I feel like you just got real indignant on behalf of Brian Bowles, which I did not expect here today. <laughs> not really. On Brian, behalf I, I didn't of Brian know I was hosting a podcast with Brian Bowles' personal representative, Ben Folks. I just don't know how much credit you could take for the broken hand doctor stoppage. It still counts. The odds are very close, Ben. TJ Dillashaw, just a slight favorite. Uh, Dominic Cruz going off at about plus 125, plus one, 115 at some places. But uh, another very close fight in terms of how the odds makers see it. Uh, Here's a question. Yes. Say Dominic Cruz comes just barnstorming back. Yeah. Marches right in there, beats TJ Dillashaw. Say puts him away by something other than TKO stoppage due to broken hands. Uh, or that, because that would still count. He would still get the title. <laughs> then is Dominic Cruz uh, the 
best bantamweight of all time in 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 the short period of MMA bantamweights. Yes. But at the same time, the way forward for Dominic Cruz would still be fraught with peril, right? The way forward for Dominic Cruz will always be fraught with peril. And that's one of the kind of crappy things about all of the injuries that he's had during his career is that I opened up this round by saying it felt really good to have him back. And we didn't realize that till we saw him kind of dance verbal circles around TJ Dillashaw during that interview with John Anik. And it would be great to see him win this and be great to see him get the title back that he never really lost. But at the same time under all the rest of those feelings, right, is this feeling where it's like, how long can he keep it together this time? And that it, I guess, means his body. Well, I guess the other side of that question is, if TJ Dillashaw beats Dominic Cruz, is he the best bantamweight of all time? Or do you just say, oh, Dominic Cruz has been gone a long time, and his body wasn't the same. He wasn't the same guy he was when he left. TJ Dillashaw still needs to do more. Um... Would be it's a tricky question. You you don't want to discount what T.J. Dillashaw has done, uh, but you know Dominic Cruz. In in claiming that Dominic Cruz is the best UFC bantamweight of all time, I think you have to uh, kind of take into account what he had done previous to this, right? Where he had had uh, three or four successful defenses of the UFC slash WEC bantamweight title uh, after winning it in back in March of 2010 when he beat. Brian Bowles by TKO Dr. Stoppage and they let him keep the belt even though <laughs> even though that win didn't really count as far as Ben Folks is concerned but uh, I mean yeah he, I, we regarded him as the greatest bantamweight around then and that was kind of before the days of Henan Barrow and now Henan Barrow has lost to TJ Dillashaw so I think if Dominic Cruz comes back and, and, and takes the title from TJ Dillashaw uh, yeah you would have to say he's the best of all time I'm not sure the same thing is true of TJ Dillashaw if he beats Dominic Cruz although it would be a, an enormous Feather in Dillashaw's cap. Good news for Dominic Cruz. Even if he can't hold it together, we know he's got another gig lined up that he's pretty good at. Yeah, one of the few guys who can seamlessly make that transition. Anything else you wanted to say about this fighter? Should we move on to Anthony Pettis and, and uh, Eddie Alvarez? Let's move on. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, speaking of guys returning after long layoffs from the cage, your guy, pretty Tony Pettis, a guy we haven't had much occasion to talk about that much on the co-main event podcast of late, returns to the Octagon for the first time since March of last year when he lost his title to Rafael Dos Anjos, and he is going to take on Eddie Alvarez in the co-main event of this UFC Fight Night event from Boston, Massachusetts. How excited are you to get Pretty Tony back in your life? Man, you know I've been missing Pretty Tony. You know he's going to be well-groomed, looking good. Coming there, eyebrow game sharp. He's going to go out there and take on Eddie Alvarez in a fight that both guys need to win pretty bad, I yeah, would they say. Do. Because if you're Anthony Pettis, you know, you're not that long in the tooth. You're only uh, 28 years old. But if you lose this one, then suddenly you've lost two in a row. It already feels like the lightweight title picture has moved on a little bit from Anthony Pettis. 
Uh, and if you are Eddie Alvarez, you don't want to lose this because you don't want to be one in two in your UFC career with your only win being that split decision over Gilbert Melendez at UFC 188. So a lot on the line for both guys here. Uh, and this is definitely one that nobody wants to lose, which I think is one of the things that naturally makes it a little bit more interesting from our point of view. Yeah, I also think, though, that if you look at who has more to gain, I'd say Anthony Pettis does. Because you're right that for Eddie Alvarez, it feels like he his period of proving that he can do well in the UFC lightweight division, that he wasn't just succeeding in Bellator due to a lack of uh, competition, it seems like that period has been prolonged because he, he got beat up by Donald Cerrone in his first fight in the UFC, got kind of beat up by Gilbert Melendez and ended up winning that split decision basically through grit and toughness and uh, adjusting his game plan as the fight wore on. And if you beat Anthony Pettis, then I think people will finally stop talking about it. And that seems like the biggest upside for Eddie Alvarez. Whereas for Anthony Pettis, if you beat uh, Eddie Alvarez, then you're right back in the mix talking shit to Conor McGregor, hoping for a red panty night of your own. Yeah, that's the one real upside that you have if you are Anthony Pettis, is that, like you said, you win this fight, suddenly you are in the Conor McGregor discussion, and you are in a discussion with just a lot of guys in MMA's most competitive weight class, where because of how Anthony Pettis fights and the excitement that he brings to the table, it's a hashtag woodwatch situation against almost anyone in this division. You, uh, Anthony Pettis against Tony Ferguson? Come on. Would, Would watch. watch. Both guys rolling around like fools out there just doing whatever <laughs> they want. I mean, Anthony like Pettis a damn video against game. a returning Nate Diaz? Oh, would, would watch. watch. So a lot of a lot of upside here for Anthony Pettis, you could say, if he goes ahead and puts away Eddie Alvarez in this fight, which, and I think you're right, if Eddie Alvarez beats this, beats Anthony Pettis in this fight, then he kind of permanently stamps his ticket as being a guy who's worthy of being considered among the elite UFC lightweights. If he does not, uh, boy, that's a tough one for him to rebound from, I think. Right. Well, also, I think that if he does not, like if you look at the odds, uh, Anthony Pettis, pretty heavy favorite. If you go into a fight like this, especially you're coming off losing your title uh, in a pretty one-sided fight against Rafael Dos Anjos, then you come in there to a fight that everybody expects you to win against Eddie Alvarez. And if you don't win it, then you start to look to people like maybe a fighter on the decline. Uh, and rightly or wrongly, you know, that's, that's the perception that will get kind of embedded into people's minds. And you don't want that. You want to get right back in there and those big money fights. And it feels like Anthony Pettis is at a point right now where he could really capitalize on some of those. And honestly, if you ask me to pick this one, I pick Anthony Pettis. Like he should win this fight. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with you. It seems like he has most of the physical advantages coming in. What are the odds? Uh, let's see. I was just looking at, it. I think Anthony Pettis right now going off at about a three to one favorite, a little over a three to one favorite, uh, depending on the sports book. Whereas, uh, Eddie Alvarez, you can find him at, you know, plus 265, plus 285, some places run around there. So, I mean, he should, like, you, you just think about, how they matched up based on how we've seen Eddie Alvarez in the last couple of fights. And it seems like Anthony Pettis ought to have the advantage in just about every area here. Uh, and the thing I wonder is if you're Anthony Pettis and you go out there and you win this one, are you talking right back into an immediate title shot or are you only talking right back into a title shot if there's Conor McGregor? I mean, I think it's, 
he's still the number one ranked contender according to the UFC's official ranking, so all things are possible. Yeah, for, they could book somebody else for a title shot and those rankings would change tomorrow. For that's true. For all things are possible for Anthony Pettis. Clearly the Conor McGregor matchup is the is the matchup that is the license to print your own money. Conor McGregor against pretty Tony Pettis, come on. Forget about it. Forget about it. I mean, I would like, say, to be honest with you, if you're Anthony Pettis, you want to fight Conor McGregor no matter what happens right. against Rafael Dos Anjos. You do. And especially, I mean, here's one where, like, hey, Reebok, forget about it. You're not going to make much of an appearance at the press conference or anything. Uh, these guys are not going to put on your stuff until they absolutely have to because they're both going to be trying to outdo each other with their suit game, trying to find out who has the, the better pocket square guy. Like, here's the first fight where a bunch of dudes from GQ and Esquire are going to be applying for press passes just just to get close to the magic, the the men's grooming and outfitting magic that there's is going to happen. Be, there's going to be, be, be people there just to see what it smells like. That's right. just like I just want to stand close to Pretty Tony Pettis and see what he smells like. Try to capture that for like, my fragrance company. If you're trying to sell luxury watches out of an attache case, you want to catch Anthony Pettis and Conor McGregor coming out of the the, the press conference for this one. Uh, if you're Anthony Pettis and you do win this, it does seem like you're either going to end up fighting Conor McGregor or somebody like Tony Ferguson or Nate Diaz. Because if you look around that top five, Habib Nurmagomedov obviously is still out, injured. We don't know exactly what's going on with him. You've already whooped up on Donald Cerrone once. You just beat Eddie Alvarez. There's not a ton of other options. So uh, if you're pretty Tony, not only is this one a tough one to come back from if you lose, if you win... Well, sky's the limit. So, there's a, a lot of reward, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, negative possibilities if you don't get the job done. So, again, not to sound like a broken record, but this is one you want to win pretty bad. Yeah, and it also seems like one that's kind of flying under the radar here when you look at this fight card. We've heard a lot about the T.J. Dillashaw Dominic Cruz fight. They seem to be getting all the big push, and then every once in a while you remember, oh yeah, Fox Sports One. On a Sunday, you're just sitting around your house. You get to turn on the t- damn TV and see Anthony Pettis and Eddie Alvarez. Yeah, and I don't, this whole, sweet deal. this whole fight card is kind of flying under the radar as far as I'm concerned. And maybe it is because of that weird Sunday, uh, Fox Sports one time slot, but you are right. You got TJ Dillashaw, Dominic Cruz, Anthony Pettis, Eddie Alvarez. You got that heavyweight fight between Travis Brown and Matt Mitrione, which, okay, a couple of heavyweights, gonna fight. I know you're hoping that one goes the distance. Yeah. Uh, you, you, that, you know what you're going to get there. You can't really argue with it. And then you, you start looking down the card. You got Patrick Cote on here. You got Ed Herman and Tim Boach fighting for BarbarianHorde.tv. I believe that's a light heavyweight fight. What year is it? Uh, Maximo Blanco. I mean, if you want to <laughs> sit at home and shout stuff at your TV, this is, this is your fight card. And right? I do. Because I do you got do the that. bricklayer, Alir Latifi on this fighting future co-main event podcast. Book club author, Sean O'Connell, as soon as we get that rescheduled. That's right. So uh I feel like there's a lot of underrated stuff happening at this fight night, Sunday night fight card. I would not disagree with you. Uh Let's do just saying stuff, and then we can get out of here All right. for this week. Now, Ben, uh we talked about this a little bit in listener mail, but I also wanted to talk a little bit more about these Reebok fines uh, because, like we said, it seemed like the Nate Diaz one was a little bit flagrant. If you're going to find anybody coming out of the situation, the guy who's there turning his water bottle around to promote his own fight company, fight uh, apparel company, seems like the guy who's going to get fired. Uh, Dos Anjos seemed like he ran amok of the uh, 
rules without really knowing it. The guy that really struck me as the as the the bad PR move here was Cowboy Cerrone mm-hmm. because we haven't gotten a lot of good news out of this Reebok deal, and I'm not sure that levying a fine against Cerrone is is the right move for the Reebok and and UFC partnership at this point. So I would like to propose something that I think could result in some much-needed good PR for both the UFC and Reebok with this whole exclusive uniform deal, and that is how about we have a system where in certain rare circumstances, fighters can petition to alter their official fight kits, maybe with one small personal item, like they say in the airlines, uh, I know you don't want to get carried away with that stuff. You don't want to hand these, these, uh, special considerations out like candy. But for situations where, I don't know, just for example, one of your most popular attractions and best known, absolutely loyal company men wants to do something rel- relatively inconspicuous to honor his terminally ill grandma. I'm going to come out and say that you should have a system in place that allows him to do that. I'm just saying. Just saying. What if the piece of personal flair uh, he would like to add is, you know, a Ted Cruz for president? Uh, I think that would fall under the logo. you don't want to hand these things out like candy. Okay. Uh, part of the deal. All right. But Donald Cerrone wants to honor his grandma. I feel like it's not a great look that you find him a bunch of money after that. What if Conor McGregor wants to put a shamrock on there that says, kiss me on my wrist? Well, Conor McGregor can do whatever he wants, okay. Ben. We already know that. He already has green tights. <laughs> well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I know you saw your boy Sage Northcutt over on his Instagram account, Super Sage Northcutt, uh, putting up a picture of him being tested by uh, a USADA representative at 6 o'clock in the morning in which he points out that he has now done six drug tests in three months. And in the picture, Sage Northcutt is handing over his sample to this USADA collector whose face is uh, very politely blurred out. And Sage Northcutt is not wearing a shirt. If he's not actively flexing his abs, if his abs just look like that all the time, it's scary. Looks like a damn action figure while he is... Right there, handing over his sample. I'm just saying, I can tell you why you keep getting tested. Just saying. I'm just saying. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens during the TJ Dillashaw-Dominic Cruz fight and other stuff. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, if you throw a, if you throw a polo shirt on... You You don't do all those sit-ups to put a polo shirt on. You throw a Slayer t-shirt on, and you don't get drug tested that much. You see, I feel Sage Northcutt's pain here, man, because when I wake up in the morning, I haven't had anything to eat yet. I just slept. I'm a little dehydrated. I look similar. Yeah. I look similar to Sage Northcutt. Yeah.